Thank you to Contentful for supporting our podcast. I'm Marcella Lewin, and this is the Contentful Creators Podcast, Season 1, Episode 19. So let's get to it. Hello and welcome to Season 1, Episode 19 of the Contentful Creators Podcast, where I have conversations with content architects, designers, developers, and other creators who use the Contentful content platform and related technologies to create web experiences. I'm your host, Marcella Lewin, a Senior Content Solutions Architect and a Certified Contentful Professional. Today, I'll be chatting all about the language of design with my guest, Kim Calderon, a product designer with a background in user experience, design research, and graphic design. But before we get started, if you want more podcast episodes, tutorials, webinars, and blog articles, all focused on creating web experiences using Contentful and related technologies, please visit www.contentfulcreators.com. All right, Kim, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Marcella. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, Kim. I'm glad you're here. We work together at Service Titan. We just started on a project and you're the designer. And you were so interesting when I had a conversation with you that I thought, you know what? We got to have you on the podcast. So I'm glad you're here. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm down to talk design anytime. Now, are you on the same team with Matt? Because Matt Felton was also on the podcast. We spoke about design systems with him. Yes. So me and Matt are on the same broader design team. We're broken up a little bit. So I'm under the product design subset and he's under the design system subset. But the design system that he creates, our team actually uses every single day. And we collaborate a lot with them when we want to make new components or make changes to certain components. So we definitely do work together. We see each other on Zoom now every week on our design review meetings and every two weeks on our biweekly team sync. So he's awesome, though. He was a great person to have. Yeah. Yeah, he was great. And he's, uh, by the way, for those of you interested in design systems or want to learn more about that, that was episode 12 of this podcast. You can go listen to it. And it's, it's a really good, he shares a lot of information. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background so we can know a little bit more about you? Sure. So my career path kind of started in graphic design. Coming out of college, I think like most people who are interested in the creative field were kind of leaning towards graphic design because it just seemed like the most practical application of it. And that was really all that was available in the curriculum. And I always enjoyed art and design and creative things and visual things just ever since I was a kid. And so graphic design seemed like the natural choice. And basically I graduated and the first full-time job I got was the watch and handbag company Fossil. And I was working underneath the marketing team. So there wasn't as much creative freedom as I would have liked. It was a lot of production work. It was a lot of kind of being at the beck and call of marketing for things that they wanted to do, campaigns that they wanted to run. And there was a lot of constraints around that. And it was such an awesome first job. But I knew that after that, I wanted something that was both more creative and something less subjective. I think one of the biggest downfalls of graphic design is that The designs are so subjective because you're not basing them off anything other than your own subjective taste almost. And so it's up to your taste and your manager's taste to figure out what you want this graphic to look like. And so that's at that point, I was kind of starting to hear about UX design, user experience design, and I pivoted towards that. And the thing that I really liked about it was that it's not all subjective. You're basing almost everything you do off of your 
user that you're designing for. So you have a lot of data, you have a lot of background knowledge. There's almost like a right and a wrong here. It's not just a matter of taste. It's a matter of, does your user understand this? Does your user enjoy using this? So it's great to have those benchmarks to understand if your design is working rather than just showing your manager and they're like, you know what, scoot that over a couple pixels. Right. It's very random. So really the user is dictating the design and then you're creating it based on the feedback and the data. Exactly. Exactly. And that, that's what I really love about user experience design is that there's a whole like research and testing aspect to it. And it really validates the work that you're doing. And in that way, it's more fulfilling as a whole, because you know that what you're doing is affecting your users for the better. Right, right. So let's dig a, a little deeper into user-centered design. And let's also just define design itself, because the word design can mean so many things. You, you ask a developer to design something, they're going to design an architecture. So let's define design from your perspective and then jump into user-centered design and define that a bit more. Sure. So I was looking up recently, like design as a definition, and I think it falls somewhere between blueprint and style. So with UX design, there's a whole sense of information architecture and wireframing something out before it's final. And that functions as kind of the blueprint of what you're creating. So it's kind of just laying things out and figuring out the structure and creating the plans for what you're making ultimately. And then the other piece of that is the style. The design is the style of it. And that would be more, you know, like the feel of it, the look and feel, the colors, the textures, the font, different things like that. And it applies in my realm to digital products, but that could apply to basically anything, the design of your laptop, the design of your table, any kind of product. Now, you breaking it apart like that, is the user-centered design, does that affect both parts or only really more of the layout and how it's going to work versus the style? And do you have more say on the style? Good question. So the user-centered design definitely has an effect on both. Typically, when we're testing things out, I would say we definitely give more emphasis to the blueprint piece because the functionality is the base of what the experience is like. And we want to make sure that that's really solid. And the style, they definitely have an effect on the style as well, because we have to make sure that the style appeals to the user. We have to make sure that it's something that they feel comfortable using. So we want to make sure, depending on the age of the user and their background, like, does this make sense for them? Like if really young users, you don't want to have like black and white, boring colors, you would want to have something maybe more colorful, more fun. And then for users, you want to make sure that the font is big enough as well. So there's just different factors like that you have to keep in mind. And we try to design specifically for our subset of users. But it sounds like the blueprint is less subjective, whereas the style could be a bit more subjective, right? More open to interpretation. Definitely. The blueprint is definitely more objective. The style does have some subjectiveness in there. Depending on what company you work for, the style may be more or less defined already. For example, for me working at Service Titan, we have our style set already and we have it built into our Anvil design system already. So there's not much change happening there. We kind of have a look and feel that we're already going with that already works with our users. And I'm sure back when they were figuring that out, they did a lot more testing with them to see what direction users liked better. Like you can you could do a lot of things like A-B testing, showing two different versions of the same screen with two different styles and seeing which one users react to better. 
there's definitely ways to make the style less subjective, but I think overall as a whole, it definitely does go that way a little bit more. Now, what's interesting is that with the style, we have, as you mentioned, the Anvil design system, which again, like I said, Matt went really deep into that. But it sounds like even for a blueprint, because our application for Service Titan is so big, that I'm assuming for Blueprint, you would have to have some sort of standard across the board as well, right? Because you wouldn't want the user to have some sort of Blueprint standard when they're in one module and then they jump to a different module of the app and it'd be completely different. Yeah, definitely. And that's actually something we're kind of working through right now. The way Service Titan is built, there's some pages that are what we describe as legacy pages and they have the previous service titan style before they did the redesign into anvil components and so one of the big initiatives is to upgrade all of the pages so that they're all on the same blueprint because not only does anvil go into the style of the components but it's also the layout of the page so we're trying to bring all of the layouts to be consistent from different templates that we've established and we, we want that blueprint to be really consistent across the board, but we're in the process of bringing it there now because they didn't have Anvil from the very beginning. That was something that evolved over time. And as we've had it, things have gotten more consistent, but it didn't always start that way. And it usually doesn't. Design and development is a messy process. and It is. It is. And when you start as, as a startup, right, you're just putting stuff out and then you're learning. And then as you grow, you start implementing standards, right? So it makes sense. A hundred percent. So the goal of this interview really is to help teams communicate better with each other. You as a designer need to understand what the developer goes through. You don't need to know coding, but you need to understand what they go through so you can speak better to them and vice versa, right? They need to understand. And that's the goal for this interview. So why is it important for a developer to understand what we're talking about today, to speak your language? How would that help the project? I would say that developers and designers need to have some shared terminology to discuss things. I'm super lucky right now at Service Titan. The, the team of developers I work with are amazing and they actually have some background knowledge of design. So when I show them my designs, they already know what I'm talking about because they have that base level knowledge. At previous places I've worked, we've had to work a little bit harder to bridge that gap of terminology. So some ways that we've done that is the developer can go into our design program and kind of check it out and see how that works and define what the parallels are. So for example, we might call it kerning between the letters to define the space between letters of text. And then in code, they call it letter spacing. When you're trying to establish these different specs, it's nice to know what the parallel is in each side's terminology so you can establish that shared language and then you can easily communicate back and forth like how to spec things out better and how to match the design better because the way that developers build things and the way we design things isn't always one-to-one the way that they have to layer things on the screen in the code doesn't always match how we imagine the design is laid out sometimes there's like workarounds that have to happen in order to make it look that way so the more that you can explain your design in a way that technically makes sense or just to be able to have a conversation to, to come to a compromise where you get the feel of the design, but it's coded in a way that is layered slightly differently, then you have a better solution. 
Right. And it's that balance between what the code can do and the designer's vision, because I know I've worked with designers and vice versa. I work with developers and there's limitations to what you can do in code. And sometimes a designer will look at that and go, that's not exactly how I want it. I want you to do this because of the devices that you're trying to showcase this app in. There may be limitations. So how do you strike that balance between you and the developer? At previous companies where I worked, where we didn't have the design system to work from, One thing that we would often do is if something in my design didn't work well for development, there was constraints that I didn't understand previously. Me and the developer would then have a conversation and he would propose different solutions. Like that animation would be so hard to do from scratch, but I found this library of animations that we can work from. And there was a couple that were really similar. Which one do you think would work the best? And we would just kind of work through it and compromise that way. That I feel like most of our discussions previously were about animation because that's something that's really difficult to do as a developer, unless that's your expertise. And we used to try to incorporate them a lot because it adds a sense of delight to the design. But that was always a struggle was just striking a balance with the animations. And then The developer I was working with at the time actually brought it one step even ahead of that. And he found this app that was a library of different animation transitions that were easy to plug and play. And you could customize them. You could customize the time to transition between start to end, how much bounce they had to them and things like that. So I could basically pick from this list of library animations and be like, I like this bounce one and the time should be 0.1 seconds and the bounce should be 2%. And then he would be able to basically take that exactly and plug it into the code. So it made it easier on both of our sides. Because of this library, it was easy for me to understand the capabilities and it was easy for him to implement them because they were already predefined. So that was one thing that I thought made it really easy to compromise. When you have a defined sense of what you can and can't do, then everybody's on the same page. So what do you feel developers should know about designers to just improve that communication? And then vice versa, what should designers know about developers, either from a communication perspective, from technology perspective, tools? What is it that you think each should know about each other? I would say developers should know about designers that we definitely dream big. So it's okay to reel us in. And we definitely want to know what the constraints are. Always feel free to collaborate with us and let us know that there's a constraint we didn't foresee. And we're always down to compromise too, because sometimes developers might realize that they can't do exactly what the design is saying, but then they just try to make it on their own as close as they can. And then they present it at the end and they're like, oh, here you go. This is what I came up with. And then the designer might be disappointed because it doesn't match exactly, but If you keep that line of communication open as you go, it's easier in the end because then the designer is aware that changes need to be made and they can help make decisions on how to change the design up and keep the look and feel, but make it easier on the developer too, so that they're not just hacking things together on their own and they're like making these design decisions that maybe they don't want to be making in the first place. So just always feel free to like collaborate with us. We're always down and we understand there's two different mindsets, right? Like the designer is thinking about the user and how can we make the user experience best in class? And the developer is thinking, how can we make this work seamlessly? And each person has their own goals in mind. So when you keep that line of communication open, both people are able to achieve their goals better. Definitely. Communication is very important. Now, what would you tell your fellow designers that they need to know about developers? I think knowing that everybody has their separate goals in mind. So as developers, we have this idealist idea of what we want the experience to be. And we always shoot for the stars. 
and developers are grounded in reality. They'll tell you that's going to be impossible with the timeline constraints we have or with the design components we have available to us. And they're not trying to kill your dreams. They're trying to make this happen. They want it to function. They want people to be able to use it seamlessly and not have errors. So they're focused on the realistic aspect of things. And if you collaborate, then you'll be able to figure out a solution that works for everyone. So almost the same idea, but just knowing that developers are approaching it from a totally different mindset. And it's not because they don't think that your mindset isn't important. It's just that that's not their main goal in their career. Their career is to make things function and make things function well. So knowing that, I think, just helps you understand each other better. Yeah, definitely. I love that. Basically, it comes down to the vision and the dream versus the reality and the implementation. And of course, we're generalizing. I don't want to get emails, people saying, well, uh, I'm a developer and I'm, I have vision too. Why? We get it. We know that. But at the end of the day, somebody has to implement it and somebody has to come up with it, right? And and it's the, everybody communicating and understanding that makes it happen. So I love that distinction. Very well said. Let's talk about the life cycle of of the designer. I mean, there's the software development life cycle, right? Is there something comparable for a designer? And if there is, can you guide us through that life cycle? Sure. There's what I like to call the ideal sort of design phase. And we've tried to map this out on our design team as well. And it goes in different phases, right? So the first phase that we like to do is something called a discovery phase. And this is where all of the user research comes in. And you try to establish a what we call a problem statement. So you're talking with your product manager, who is usually the person that brings you the issue that you're going to work on. You talk it through, you try to narrow it down to one single statement that embodies everything you want to achieve in this cycle of design. And in doing that, then when you go into your research, you have this single point to always focus on. And you can always link yourself back to that to keep the project focused all the way through. So then you want to do some user research. You want to get some input on what users are thinking about that idea right now, what they're doing at this point without that feature, and just kind of establish some of those things. So you have some background knowledge on where their biggest pain points are. And then you'll probably go into a first iteration of the design. And at this point, you'll be working on the blueprint piece of things. You'll be working on the information architecture, you'll be working on the wireframes, which is like the first draft layout of things. And it's not very pretty. It's not very polished, but it's just for laying things down for the very first time and rearranging things into a place where you feel like it's in a good layout. And then once you have that established, depending on the cycle, so there's there's some wiggle room. It depends on how teams do it. Some teams do usability testing at this point with a little bit Maybe they polish the wireframes a tiny bit. They add some color. They make it look more real. They'll do some usability testing. They'll reach out to users and have them click through what we call a prototype. So it's basically the design screens linked together, almost like smoke and mirror. So it looks like it's working, but really it's just flat screens that you click on one part of the screen and it brings you to another flat screen. And it kind of creates a mock experience of what it would really be like. So we'll have users click through that and give us feedback on how things are working and we'll observe and see if they get stuck anywhere. 
do another iteration after that. And then we'll try to finalize the design and then we'll add the style component of design to it. And we'll add the colors, we'll add the polish, we'll add in the anvil components if you have a design system. And then we try to finish things up at that point and then we'll hand it off to development. I see. So at that point is when development gets involved. Until that point, it's basically you guys with the customers. Basically. And actually, I should say that I left out an important piece of it. So I only described what design is doing on our own. But throughout this process, there's check-ins with our product manager and we do do check-ins with engineer early on. So I would say as soon as we have that early layout of wireframes when we're working on the blueprint, we will check in with developers and we'll kind of give them an idea of what we're thinking to make sure that things are feasible. Because like I said earlier, keeping the line of communication open is super important to make sure you're not going down a rabbit hole that's going to be unrealistic when it's time to build it. So we'll check in at that point and then we'll check in again once we have we start getting that polished version ready. It might not be 100%, but we'll check in again and make sure that the direction is good and there's nothing we're missing. And then when we hand it off, then we do another meeting and it's more official and I'll comment notes on everything and we'll just make sure that there's nothing else that needs to be there. Now, you mentioned information architecture. Can you expand a little bit on that? And and how are you involved in that aspect as a designer? Sure. So information architecture is one of the early, early parts of the blueprint part of design. So that would be when you're trying to figure out the organization of information in a certain web flow. For example, when I work a lot on the onboarding experience of Service Titan. And in the onboarding experience, it's a very sequential flow. It's step one, step two, step three, step four, step five. And they go in that order and there's not a lot of deviation. But other web flows where you're not in an onboarding experience, you might start at one screen and then you can branch off from there in many different directions. You could start on the home screen. You could go to invoices. You could go to the settings page. You could go to the dashboard And then from those different screens, you could branch off from there as well. So the information architecture is basically creating a map of the possible pathways that the user can take in the software. So for me, work information architecture work that I'm doing in onboarding, since it's sequential, is typically creating what we call the user flow. And that's basically deciding on the order of the screens and the order of the information that we're presenting to the user in a way that makes the most sense. So for onboarding, we start typically try to start at the very basic level information. And then the next screen builds on top of that. And the next screen builds on top of that. And we leave the most complex things for last, just so that you kind of have this order of operations of things. And if you need to reference back, you can. Another great thing about doing it this way is that when you fill out the basic information first, if later on you need to reference that information again, we can pre-populate it for the user. So it makes it easy for them since it shows in automatically. So that's basically how I would describe the way I use information architecture, but it can get much more complex than that when you're in a software where it branches off a lot, which other parts of Service Titan definitely do. Now, one thing that's really interesting coming from the content side is, you know, I'm involved with implementing Contentful quite a bit within Service Titan, but coming from the content side, and maybe we are doing this, I know we're starting to do this more, but I'm wondering if this is a standard even outside of Service Titan is I never hear about involving content people in that sort of design process 
or even starting to notate, well, look, in this screen, we may need content that needs to be populated by content authors, or where is the content going to come from? And how do we empower those users to create that content? Is that something that I know we're starting to do at Service Titan because of Contentful, but is that something that's sort of standard outside of Service Titan in the industry? Or no, they're really not involving content people at this level yet? No, that's a good question. And I think it's sometimes kind of sad for content people, because if you don't have an interchangeable content mechanism like Contentful, and it's just static copy, often the copy people are like very last in line. So you have the design and as either maybe before it's handed off to development or while it's in development, we hand it over to copy and we're like, hey, can you guys check out this copy and make sure that it sounds right and it looks good? And at that point, you already kind of have constraints about the size of the copy because the design only accounts for three lines of text here or these things need to be a single word. So at that point, they're working around all these constraints, which might be a good and a bad thing. I feel like having no constraints sometimes is overwhelming, but I think that there could be a better way to work through it and involve content folks earlier as the design is happening and maybe get their input as you're designing something. Like if you were to put content here, how long do you think it would be? Or how many paragraphs do you think this is? Or do you think this would be a single word or two words or a phrase just so that you can design around what is actually going to fit in this frame or this template. Right. Or even if it's going to be text or video or a podcast or something else that you might want to embed in there, right? Because developers look at it from the scalability perspective of the app, right? And how can we implement this so it scales and it works great. Designers are looking at it from the usability perspective. Content people will look at it from the instructional perspective is how do we teach whatever we're trying to get the user to do in this screen? What's the best way to teach this? And it could be a sentence with a link to an sort of an expanded video, right? But it sounds to me as content becomes just as important as UX design and as code for the user overall that I think the industry hopefully will start moving towards involving content creators more often way at the beginning as opposed, like you said, oh, here, here you go. Oh, what can we do now? Yes, no, I totally agree. And a lot of times if we're designing things where there's multimedia content, like a podcast or like a video, we'll just assume that it's going to be there. We're like, yeah, we're going to include a video here assumption that it's going to exist, but we may or may not ask for that content until later down the line. Like it would be nice to reach out at that point. And then maybe the content person might say something like a video is a good idea, but I actually think in this context, an article would be better because the user wants a step-by-step, easy-to-read flow. And so we could kind of figure those things out earlier instead of waiting. Right, exactly. I think that's a great point. In other words, involving them as consultants as opposed to as just here, go do this. Yeah. It's like, what do you think we could do better here from an instructional perspective versus, hey, can you just go create this video for me? I think exactly. That, yeah, totally. I agree 100%. So let's jump into some terms. So why don't we start with the concept of ideation? When we talk about ideation, it's almost like a form of brainstorming, but usually we do ideation individually. I guess maybe this is a personal preference, but I like to ideate individually by myself because I feel like I can access deeper parts of my brain that way. I always feel like meetings where you're brainstorming in the moment, it's always hard for me to think of things off the top of my head. Like I need time. I need silence. Right. The call (laughs) ends. You go, man, I should have said that. Right. Because you think about it later. No, I get it. Totally. Exactly. Yeah. So I like to ideate by myself. And, And by ideate, we basically just mean 
coming up with concepts, like coming up with some ideas for solutions and just kind of working through them a little bit and thinking about, will this actually be a a viable solution or not? And just kind of narrowing them down maybe to a couple good ones. Like the, I think of the ideation process as kind of a funnel. You start at the top with all these different ideas and some of them might be good. Some of them might be bad, but you like to get them all out anyway, just to document. And then from there, you select the couple that you think are going to work the best and you move them down the funnel and then you work through them a little bit more. And then you do it again. You pick the best ideas from there and move it down the funnel. And then maybe you end up with like two or three of the best ideas. And then at that point, I would say it's time to then meet with a cross-functional team and then maybe they've been ideating on their own as well. So they'll have some ideas to bring to the table. And then you guys kind of chat it through at that point. But for me, ideation is like a solo activity first. And then you bring those ideas together. And then once it becomes collaborative, then it's easier because you have something to work from and you're not just a blank slate. Okay, so now we go from ideation, you go into wireframing, and then you create a prototype. What tools do you use for that? What are some cool tools that designers use to create these prototypes? Right now, we use... Figma for everything. We recently, late last year, migrated over to Figma. And so that's our both our design tool and our prototyping tool. And it's amazing. It's really, really powerful. And actually, it's a third thing too. It's actually the handoff software that we use and give to our developers because it actually shows the different development specs and code snippets in there as well. So it's become our all-in-one for everything. It's really great because the prototyping piece of it isn't like just stick it in there so that we have something. It's actually really good. And they have really great transitions. They have something called Smart Animate that's really nice for prototypes and makes it look really natural. Really, Figma is the one thing that I'm using right now. But previously, we used a combination of Sketch that used to be the single source of truth for designers as their design software until Figma kind of came in and headed them off and has become like this crazy awesome thing. But when we were using Sketch, we had to use a separate software for handoff to development. We were using Zeppelin, which is a really great tool too. And development would then take a look in there for their specs and code snippets. And then for prototyping with Sketch, they had something embedded in Sketch to do some very basic prototypes. But we often used InVision because it was just a little bit better and you can do a little bit more with it. But it depends how fancy you want to get because there's other software too where you could get even crazier with prototypes. There is a software I used before called principle and you could put your designs into principle and link things together and you could make it like very very close to an actually developed product it was pretty impressive the different things you could do with animation in there but if you're just looking for basic prototype software i feel like envision is really good or if you want an all-in-one like we have figma i think is pretty top of the line well and it's interesting you said that that you can really go all crazy and make it super super involved so how do you find that balance of spending 10 weeks on a prototype versus spending a week on a prototype and nine weeks actually implementing it in production i think it actually really depends on the development team that you're working with and how your collaboration goes. The development team that I work with is really great with design and animation. So I don't feel like I need to pre-design a lot of that for them because I feel like they have a sense of what our animation style is already and they kind of implement it on their own. 
And because we have the design system of components, there's certain animation things that are already embedded in them. So there's things that we don't have to specify every single time because they already exist. But if you're creating an entirely new component and you want to implement what the animation is for it, like if you created this new kind of card that expands and collapses and you want to show how that animation should work, I think that it's totally fine to spend time doing that just to make sure that it looks seamless, it looks nice. But I don't know. I always felt like the animation part of a prototype is something that you should collaborate with the developer on because on one hand, it can be really difficult for them. But then on the other hand, I think that's an actually really fun part for them is figuring out what animation to use because that's where things start moving around the page. There's a lot of rhythm happening and fun stuff. So I always think it's really nice to kind of collaborate on that piece of things and not just create this prototype and be like, make it like this. (laughs) Right. And just to be clear, we're talking about animation as in the component of how it opens or how it closes or how it expands. We're not talking about animation like After Effects animation. We're not that that's not the kind of stuff we're talking about here. Right. Yes. What I was referring to was something we might refer to as micro animations. So exactly what you said, like the opening and collapsing of a car hard how it transitions from one page to another does it slide in from the right does it fade in does it pop in from the bottom usually those are the kind of animations we're talking about but interestingly enough one of my coworkers has been working on creating the second type of animations you talked about where you're like working in after effects and maybe it's like a completed state where you have a little illustration and the illustration moves a little bit, like some confetti comes out or something, like as a little celebratory moment. So we definitely want to get more into that second type of animation as well, just in terms of elevating the user experience to be slightly more delightful and just add that little extra oomph. I feel like it always looks so much more like professional and polished when you have those. But typically we focus on those micro animations. Those are more like a basic need, I think. I've never heard of the term micro animation. I love it. You know, obviously heard of the term micro content, which is important, right? Like tooltips and things like that. So it's really good to know that. And it's also micro animation is extremely important. I mean, if you look at Mac OS itself, right? They spend tons of time in these kind of micro animations to make the entire experience feel just better. It's almost, it's a feeling. It's hard to describe, but it you can see something minimized in one one particular way and the other one just closes when it minimizes it disappears it gives a different feeling so even though it seems like a small little thing that people may say well why are you spending so much time how is that going to improve anything it really does overall yeah 100% I think it does add something that's a little bit indescribable it's like an extra feeling of satisfaction or something right. yeah yeah I agree so you spoke a lot about research and researching with customers right but what are the kinds of research do designers do so aside from the user research. Designers actually research a lot of different things, which I think is probably surprising to folks who aren't designers. Anytime we're designing a new layout or a new component, a new way to create an expandable card, we always research what is the best practice for that. So we'll research other websites who are already doing that. We'll research on websites for inspiration, like Dribble, for example. We'll research if anyone within our company has ever done something remotely similar to see if there's any kind of established pattern we need to follow. So we actually research a lot when it comes to the style part of design too, which I think is something that people might be surprised about, that there's a lot of research that goes into these things. And I think it's funny too, because the reason I think it's surprising is because sometimes when designers present a design that they've been working on, cross-functional members of the team might 
say something like, well, did you think about doing it this other way? And the answer is always going to be yes. <laughs> so designers definitely research like a plethora of ways to do things and then they narrow it down to the best one. And that question is never an unacceptable question to ask, by the way. I just want to make that clear. It's always acceptable to bring new ideas to the table and suggest new ways of doing things because sometimes designers didn't think of doing it that way. And maybe it's like a technical driven solution that an engineer brought up or something and a designer wouldn't have thought about it. But it's just good to know. And I think it's on the designer too to also present. These are the different solutions that I explored so that they can get a sense of everything that's been exhausted already so that you don't think that, I don't know. I think sometimes people have a misconception about designers is they just like pick this one direction and ran with it. And they didn't explore a lot of other options first. Whereas I'm pretty sure they probably did. They probably exhausted everything and found this one to be the best way. That's definitely one thing that designers do a lot of research on is the different style components as well, outside of the blueprint of things. So even though designing is very, very creative, and when you say that, it sounds like you said, they just came up with something in their brain because they're creative and they just implemented that. It sounds like what you're saying is designers are very data-driven. So there's a lot of that, that logical side of the brain that they use data to really define and provide guidelines for their design. It's not just like, well, I think this is great. I just came up with this last night. Yes, 100%. We'll look at data. We'll look at best practices. We definitely reference things like design principles for composition. And those things, I feel, are more data-driven. They're more logical. They're not something that's as subjective. They're very objective. You can say, hey, let me show you why we did this. Exactly. Exactly. It's always important to have the why. It's always important as a designer to be able to defend the decisions that you make. A lot of times what happens when you're a new designer is that you're not as good at that because you're not used to it. You're not used to having to say, well, I made this decision for this reason and here's all the data that I have behind it. But it's so important to be able to do that. That's a kind of a hidden skill that designers have to develop over time. Right. It's finding the balance between facts and feelings. Yeah, exactly. So what's the difference between visual design, user experience design, and user interface design? A lot of times those three things end up overlapping, especially in terms of job titles. But typically the way we separate them out in the field is we say user experience design focuses on that blueprint aspect of design. So the layout, the user research, that all of those kind of more objective things and establishing that initial layout and information architecture. And then we'll say the user interface design is more of the style piece of design where you're kind of, you're then applying basically different design styles to it, like colors, typefaces, textures, the look and feel, the different illustrations. You're kind of, a, you're kind of skinning that blueprint to be something more lively and you're adding the look and feel to it. Now, visual designer, a lot of times that and user interface designer are almost interchangeable, but I think the differentiating factor of visual designer is they focus even more on look and feel, even abstracted from the interface. So they might focus on like the brand style guidelines for a company. They might be the one who establishes like, what are our colors that we use? What are our font faces that we use? What is the imagery and illustrations that we use? Like what's the look and feel of our product as a whole? And they may not be the one who's actually applying it to the interface where the UI designer, user interface designer 
is the person who applies it. Very cool. Thanks for clarifying those for me. Now, we're getting pretty close to the end here. I've got literally, I don't know, I think 10, 15 more questions. We're not going to get through all of them, but I'm going to touch on something that I'm passionate about, which is content and content modeling. Do you feel that designers should be involved in the content modeling phase of a project? Yeah, definitely. I think one thing that we've noticed as we've started working with Contentful is it's great to have the design constraints to work around when we're modeling the content. So it's almost a give and take with what I said earlier about bringing content earlier in the design phase, but then also having the design to work with when you're creating the content, because then you understand like how much room do I have to work with here? What is the size of the image I need to fit here? What level of contrast do I need on this text in order to work with the background that's there? So it's almost like an iterative cycle. Like I think content and design should be working together to create something that strikes a balance on both sides. Totally. So what tip would you give to be able to bring in content and content modeling design and content developers earlier in the project. What do you recommend we do as a team to be able to say, hey, let's make sure content is represented here at the early phase of the project? One thing that might be good is looping in a content person in one of the early meetings where you're meeting with your product manager and your designer, bring in a content person then as well. And you might at that point, maybe not even have a design yet, but you have an idea of what you're going to build and you have an idea of what the content is going to be in the design. So they can probably help you lay out step-by-step step, like what content needs to go on each screen. Because oftentimes that's left up to the designer. And on one hand, it's good because it gives us flexibility, but sometimes too much flexibility is overwhelming and having a little bit of constraint to work with is better. So, and just being able to collaborate and kind of suss that out early, I think would be a good thing because then the content person can say like, these things go together, they should be on one screen. These things could go together or they could be separated. And then the designer like at least has that base knowledge to know like, okay, like I'll, I'll design around these different pieces of content and make sure that they work together. Yeah. Well, Kim, unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time. I just want to end it with asking you, what is the most important thing that people in a team should know about designers? Like at the end of the day, they need to know this to really understand how to work with designers. I think that in order to work with designers, well, at least I can speak for product designers like myself or user experience designers. I would say that we have the best intentions for creating the best experience for our users. If we get a little passionate about why a design should go in a different direction, it's most likely because we know the users will appreciate it so much more if it's like that. It's usually not because we just prefer it that way or for some subjective taste reason. Although, I mean, I can't speak for every situation. Sometimes it might be that too. But we might start bringing out data and being like, hey, like users really enjoyed this so much more when it was laid out this way or when the button was over there, they couldn't find it. So we have to have it over here in order for them to see it. So I would say that we're usually speaking from the perspective of our users and we're there to advocate for them all the time. So if we get a little passionate, that's why. We just want to build a good experience for them. Passionate people change the world. But Kim, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time here. Thank you for sharing all the wonderful knowledge you have. And I know we're going to be working together on more projects in Service Titan. So if people want to get a hold of you, do you want to share any kind of contact information? 
Sure. So you could look at my portfolio website. It's kimcalderon.com, just my name.com. And I think there's contact information on there as well. And you could check out some of the work that I've done at previous companies. I don't have anything from Service Titan on there yet, but there's still some good projects. They're worthwhile to take a peek at if you're interested. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Kim. And to the rest of you, I'm glad you were here with us. Just a quick reminder to visit www.contentfulcreators.com for more podcast episodes, tutorials, webinars, and blog articles. So until the next episode, I'm your host, Marcelo Lewin. Cheers, everyone. 